0: We're continuing this morning and talking about Jesus' statement, I am the resurrection and the life. And it's important that when we hear this statement, this claim, from a man, from a man. Remember, this is the man that grew up down the street in, what's that name of that town? Nazareth something It's like he grew up in West Wego. Well, no, no, really. It's like, you remember this man, His daddy was a carpenter. He helped his daddy. You remember this man? My kids went to school with him. And then here's this man saying to us that he is actually the resurrection and the life. I, I, why do I repeat these things like this? Because I want us to grasp as best we can, even in a limited way, the profundity. You know what profundity means? Profound. The profundity. The breathtaking comments and statements that he makes to the people. How can that be? And so in this statement, what we have to be very careful of is this, that we don't hear I am the resurrection and the life as merely a statement of what Jesus is going to do one morning. He is going to do this one morning. But what we don't want to do is miss the very large understanding That God is giving us through his son. That since the fall. This is important. It may be in your notes. I don't remember everything in the notes. Since the fall. God has decreed. Has beforehand determined. Knowing what would happen. Having decreed what will happen. That. I will deal with my people who are now fallen in Adam. Remember when Adam sinned, all humanity sinned. You remember that, Chris? In First Corinthians, I'm sorry, in, in Romans chapter 12, verse two, chapter 5, verse 12. When Adam sinned, what? Everybody is counted as a sinner. Everybody's under the sentence of death. And so in this statement, I am the resurrection of the life. This is God the Father through His Son, telling humanity that I am. From the fall on, remember when Adam ate verse three, uh, verse six of chapter three of Genesis. After Adam ate, everything he's going to do. May I repeat what I just said? Everything that God is going to do in relation to humanity in general and to his people in particular is going to be governed by one principle that he himself has not only established, but a principle to which he has committed himself by creating us. As his image bearers, he's committed himself to this that there's one principle that's going to govern everything that I have for my people, and that is this I will, what word did I use? Will. I will for my people bring forth resurrection life out of death. That's the principle. From Genesis 3, 6 on, that governs everything that God would do. Now, I want to emphasize that because we don't want to be too narrow in our understanding of this all-encompassing statement of Jesus. That since my people have now come under the curse of death and have the sentence of death On them and in them because of the fall. I am going to achieve my creational purposes. Purpose. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness in Genesis 126. I'm gonna make it happen. And I'm gonna make it happen this way that I myself will bring forth and guarantee. That my people will be the people of my image, and I'm going to guarantee it by bringing resurrection life out of their sentence of death. Do we get this? Is this okay? So can we see this statement, I am the resurrection and the life, is a much larger concept. This is the umbrella means of God. From Genesis 3 6 all the way, all the way to the end of Revelation, this is the umbrella way, principle, activity that God achieves His purpose. Amen? Amen. So, how does He do it? Resurrection out of life. I'm sorry, out of death. Father, just thank you so much. Thank you so much. Father, When we look at the religions of the world and the cultural histories of humanity, there is nothing, nothing like this. There are a few things that kind of a little bit look like it could be. Father, this is completely, absolutely unique in the annals of humanity. This is the truth. This is the way you work. And Father, we thank you so much for bringing us into your kingdom, giving us eternal life through the very death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Father, cause us to see the enormity of this in an increasing way. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we've also said this. Please remember this. Everything about Jesus. How much? Everything Everything about Him, His identity, everything about His purpose, everything about the way He accomplishes His purpose, everything He says. Everything he does. Have I left anything out yet? If I have, let me know. Everything that we read about in the New Testament concerning Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his exaltation, and his sending the Holy Spirit, everything is already In the Tanakh. Remember what the Tanakh is? The Old Testament. Everything's there, Wendy. There's nothing in the life of this man that is not already in seed form in the Old Testament. The Old Testament being the root system of God's accomplishment of his purpose. And the New Testament is the blossoming forth of what God is doing. Amen? <clears throat> so what we're going to have to do is to make sure that what Jesus says and does is identified or exampled or foreshadowed where in the Old Testament because that's the verification. you remember after the resurrection what jesus said in luke twenty four forty four the two disciples leaving. Jerusalem going back to uh, remember that what Emmaus remember that we had hoped that Jesus would be the Messiah we had hope he's dead and even now some of the people we know said he's risen from the dead well you know there is no such thing in their minds as a real resurrection that someone has come back after being dead this many years days and actually has brought himself back who does that. And what did Jesus say to them in verse 44? Very important verse. You see, because in verse 44, Jesus sums up the entire Old Testament. In verse 44, Jesus sums up the entire Old Testament. All things, how much? All, if it's in your notes, circle all. All things written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The three sections of the Tanakh. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Those are the three sections of the Hebrew Scriptures. So Jesus gives us this principle of death giving way to resurrection life. Remember in John chapter 12 and verse 24, what do you say? I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, to whom is he referring? Himself. A grain of wheat is the seed. Are you with me this morning? A grain of wheat is the seed. I tell you that if a grain of wheat falls where? Into the ground. What does that signify? It is buried. If it falls into the ground. And dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And that fruit comes to us in the resurrection of Jesus. So let's look into the Tanakh and look at a couple of examples. There are just so many. But I've just chosen a couple in the very beginning. First of all, the first example, where would you expect to see the first example of God bringing forth life out of death. God saying death will not have its way in my purpose. It will not be successful. It will be there, but it will never be successful. What will be successful is my determination to bring forth those in whom my very life lives as my image bearers. Correct? So that's God's determination." It doesn't happen simply because God knows it's going to happen. It happens because he decrees it before the foundation of the world. Are we getting it? So where would we expect to see the first example? We would expect to see the first example in the first death. Good morning. We don't have to go into any other part of the book of Genesis. Yeah, you know, I've done some background reading and all of this and fine, I have to do that. If I knew everything, I wouldn't have to study. And it's interesting that the, the first example of this is basically in Genesis chapter 8, Noah's flood. But I think how can that be the first example? That's not the most obvious one. There are a couple who will say it's Genesis 3. Death gives way to life. So what happens in Genesis 3? Remember in Genesis 2.27, what did the Lord say to Adam? Remember the two trees? So Genesis 2.27, you need to know these verses. What does he say in Genesis 2.27? I'm sorry, 17, thank you a lot. Tiffany is awake. You see, that was a test, and only Tiffany passed it. <laughs> Bob, you have to do that as a teacher, right? You don't, you don't want to make them think you're stupid. You are, you know. I mean, this happens. Teachers don't know everything. From every tree of the garden, you may. Does it say eat freely? Eat, eat. But from that tree right there, the tree of the knowledge of the good and of good and evil, what you may not eat, because in the day that you eat of it, you shall. No, it doesn't say die. It says surely die. God has said, you disobey me, death. Fine. So we read in Genesis 3, 6, what? I'm going to try to get through what I want to say today. We read in Genesis 3, 6, what? And he ate. You remember the last three uh, words of Genesis 3, 6. When that happened. In the next verse, we should expect. Now isn't it interesting, we? I mean, if it happened, we wouldn't be here. But let's just say it this way. In the next verse, God, Anthony, has decreed, you're going to die if you eat it. You're going to die. There's no way around this. you dead. So the next verse, okay, what do we expect in the read? And Adam died. Is that what we read? Well, what do we read in verse 7? Adam and Eve are still kicking. They ran off to the cabbage patch. You read that? They ran off to the cabbage patch. And what did they do? They, They put clothes around them because they found, ah, I'm naked, ah. By the way, the word naked here obviously is a physical thing, but it represents the loss of the covering of the glory of God. The loss of the covering of the glory of God. They had been dressed, not physically, but spiritually in such a way that the glory of God, the image of God was being manifested through them in their human bodies. And when they ate, what happened to that cover? Listen to it. What happened to that cover? Did you just hear what I said? What happened to that spiritual garment? They lost it, or it was stripped from them. Phyllis, did you just hear that? They were wearing the spiritual garment of God's glory. And when they're naked, remember Laodicea, you're naked. Remember that? Revelation 3, knock on the door. I want you to have fellowship with me. These are God's people. I want you to have fellowship. You know, you're blind. You're naked. My glory is not being manifested in you. As the way it should. He doesn't mean they're physically naked. A bunch of people in church running around naked. They had been clothed with the very presence of the Spirit of God. He was their clothing before sin entered the world. Please keep that in your mind. Because it's going to make another verse extremely significant. And when they sin, God stripped them. Of their spiritual clothing. He withdrew his personal presence. Did you understand what I just used? I used an adjective. His what? Personal presence from them. He didn't just, ah, I can't be with them. And I'm going, God is everywhere. But he withdrew his personal fellowshipping presence from them. And as a result, Joe, they became spiritually dead as it pertains to their personal fellowship with God. Oh, you're with me this morning. I may not get to the other examples, but this one covers all of them. Where are you, Adam? You see where I am right now in verse 8? Where are you? Why does God ask that? Does he not know that they're behind a cabbage patch? Anton, do you think he doesn't know that? He has x-ray vision. You see, like Superman. He can see through it. (laughs) Why is he asking, where are you? If we confess our sins. Remember 1 John? He is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Where are you? God is eliciting from them, eliciting from them. What have you done? Admit it. Confess. Say what you've done. That's the very first step in receiving the cleansing, continual cleansing work of the Holy Spirit in repentance. The very first step is not repentance. It's cleansing through confession, which is the gift of God leading us to repentance. All right? Why does the Lord ask that? He wants them to repent, wants them to admit we've sinned. Now, how does God illustrate this overriding principle that for his people, do you, understand? do you hear what I'm saying? For his people, his people, his people, not all the world. It is his people alone for whom he is doing this. God makes choices. He chooses some and he doesn't choose others. And what is this principle? I'm going to bring death, a life out of death. And so in verse 21, how does he illustrate it? He does something physically in verse 21 that is not only a physical work that is required for Adam and Eve to remain in fellowship with God. Or to be reestablished in fellowship, I should say. But is also a foreshadowing of the way God will redeem his people from death and give them eternal life. So what happens in verse 21? The Lord does what? Do you see it in your Bible? The Lord what? He covers them. He enwraps them. He clothes them with flesh, with the skin of a substitute. He slays an innocent animal, the shedding of the blood, and then the flesh of that animal, that innocent one who has died, is given to cover. Adam and Eve, as God's glory had previously covered them. To be their temporary covering until the permanent covering is given to God's people when the Holy Spirit comes upon his people. Oh, you're with me this morning. Can you just say amen, not to me, but to what God is doing? This is a picture of the way God will deal with the issue of sin in our lives for the sake of his own name, for the sake of his own purpose. Got it? I'm going to cover them. Isn't it interesting that a man will come and that the Son of God will come and he will put on the covering he will be clothed with the flesh of a human being as this Adam and Eve were symbolically, not sorry, physically, but it meant something more than that, were covered over with the flesh of an innocent so that when Yahweh, God, looks at these two, I'm over here if everybody's looking at me. When God looks at these two, does he now see his people wrapped in their fallen state? Or does he see them wrapped in the covering of the redemptive work of Jesus, which is to come? Which way does he see them? Come on, come on, come on. He sees them wrapped up in his covering. Does that mean he doesn't see that they are sinning? He sees that. But now he can look upon his people, not with judgment because of their sin, but he can look upon them knowing this. Yes, they're still doing wrong. Yes. Cliff, you're still nasty. Charles, you're still just a snake in the grass when it comes to sin sometimes. People say, well, God doesn't see our sin. Oh, come on, come on. He sees it, but within what context? He sees it within the total forgiving covering of the innocent Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1:29. Do you see that? He sees your life and my life. From the moment you're conceived to the moment you take your last breath, that life is enwrapped with the covering of Christ. And although God sees the sin, he sees it having been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb that we are forgiven in Christ. Amen? Now, notice this. What does that verse say? Genesis 321. Somebody tell me what it says. I just can't remember anymore. What does it say? And what? And God what? Come on, say it out loud. You can, you can talk in the class. I'm, I'm all right. I'll just talk louder than you Say it again, Robert. Bob, say it again. I'm sorry. You're right. You're, you're all Mike. I've called you Bob. You know, there's just no telling what I'll call you in your face. He did what? Made garments of skin. First of all, look Look at the verse. Look at the subjects and the verbs. He made. And what did he do with those garments, Michael? And he clothed them. Now, Charles, you're an attorney. Do you see anything in that verse that is indicative of what Adam has to do in order to be clothed? Ain't nothing there. That's the principle of how God saves us. He saves us by first covering us in the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. Get it right. And how do we know that Adam and Eve were covered? Successfully because they didn't fight God. I don't want to wear that. I don't want to wear that. I don't like that dress. I don't like that shirt. I want to wear something else. This smells like an old goat. No, he's not talking about me. (laughs) I don't like it. It's not pretty. He covers them. He made the coats of skin. And he covered Adam and Eve. Does it say in that verse, because this is the verse that declares God's way of saving us. Just like in Adam, all sin, therefore in this event, God is declaring this is the way you're going to be saved. This is it. Do you see anything in that verse that would indicate That Adam either did or had to first call upon God to save him. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Is there anything in that verse that says Adam first did this. And when God saw that Adam did this, therefore God did this. Is that in there? Am I reading something wrong? No, it's not there. The work of salvation is absolutely the unilateral. What does that word mean? Alone, unilaterally, God's work. And in order for Adam and Eve to be clothed, they had to receive it. Correct. So, what is first? I'm sorry. What does John one twelve say? Oh, you should know these verses. Remember John eleven. He came to his own; his own did not re-, But as to as many as what received him, as to as many as cooperated cooperated and yielded to the dressing or the new clothing that God has given them to as many as received this new clothing by faith to as many as received him to them he gave what the authority to become the children of God even to those who believe on his name, in other words, in his character. And then verse 13 begins to tell you, this didn't happen because of the will of man or the will of flesh. or anything. This is God's work. You see, you're here today as a child of God because before the foundation of the world, God knew you personally in relationship and at a particular period of time. God applied the blood of Jesus shed at the cross 2,000-some-odd years ago to you. So when were we saved? From the foundation of the world, when did it happen in history? When Jesus says, it is accomplished, it is finished. And when did we come to the realization of it? When we were born again. Do you see this? Do you see this? That's an example. The next example, and I'll have to go through it pretty quickly, is in Genesis chapter 8. You remember what's happening in Genesis chapter 8? The whole world is filled with evil. Man's mind is continually what? Working evil, evil, evil. And the Lord says, look, I'm going to change this. I'm going to destroy everything, and I'm going to kill all humanity. <clears throat> Would it have been good for God to kill absolutely everyone could he be careful could he have killed everyone well in a couple of things yes maybe because he has that potential but no because it would have been contrary to his original his original purpose so why does he call Noah and his family why because of Genesis 126 He's called them to be his image bearers coming through the flood, right? Everything goes back to the purpose of God in creating us. Genesis 126 controls everything. So what does the Lord do? He puts them in the ark. Remember that? And he closes the door. And then the ark goes through the fury, wrath, wrath, And punishment of God upon sinful humanity. Correct? The ark is beaten against by the winds and the waves physically but also symbolically of the Lord's wrath because of their sin. God in this convulsion or convulsion or whatever of this world is punishing humanity. He is releasing his wrath upon the world. But what about these eight people? What about them? Where are they? Noah and his family, remember? Wife and kid, remember that? What about these eight people? Where are they? They are in the ark. In the ark. How did they get into the ark? Did Noah say one day, Lord, Lord? I know there's a storm coming. Will you save me and my family? Do you see that in the text? Is God unilaterally calling Noah to come into the ark? And Adam, I'm sorry, Noah and his family receive this as they do Christ. They what? Yes, I will do that. Their response to God's decree that they're coming is we're coming. Their response to God's decree of saving them is what? Yes, we're coming. Do you see that? Now. Were listen be careful. Were was this family punished? Did they were they punished for their sins? Yes, but not personally. They were punished what? In the ark. They were experiencing the punishment that the ark was enduring on their behalf. Are you with me right now? Do you know anything about bridges and boats? You do. They were experiencing the wrath of God because of their sin. But in the ark, so that as a result, they were saved alive. Hmm? So what does God do? He brings out of the death of humanity... Their spiritual death. Resurrection or new life. A new beginning. A regenesis. A regeneration. You've heard of the word regenerate. A regenesis. A new genesis. Out of their death. So that on Mount Ararat, the ark came to rest. On what day? It says this. They came to rest... On the 17th day of the seventh month. Who cares? It's just important that they came to rest. No, no. Why is there such specificity? And who, writing this fairy tale, this myth, could have been so absolutely accurate... In describing the date that the ark rested from the fury of God, having completed its work. Are you hearing me now? Having completed its work, it is finished. The ark is at rest. It's over. God has completed his work of saving Adam I keep saying Adam, but you know, this other family, Noah. He's rested. He's completed it. Now the work is getting the model young. Let's go live. Why such specificity? What is the significance of this 17th day of the seventh month? Well, I think it's in your notes, but when you turn to Exodus chapter 12, the Lord is instituting the Passover. You remember what the Passover is? That's the celebration when Israel will take a lamb, an innocent lamb without blemish. And each family will have a lamb, and each family will kill the lamb, and each family will eat the lamb. In other words, the lamb must be in them. And they would take the blood of the lamb and spread it all over the doorpost. Remember that? And so the Lord says, When I see the blood, where? On the doors. The door is the entrance to your life. On your heart, if you would. I would do what? Passover. See, you people are as sinful as everybody else. But I've determined to save you as my people before the foundation of the world. And so if this is the way I'm going to do it. God said, come in. He decreed that for his people and they received or walked in or embraced God's decree by doing. They didn't do it in order to be saved. God brought them in to save them. The issue is on God. Now, what day does the Passover begin? The 14th of Nisan, I've skipped the point. So on in the first or second verse, I can't remember. What does the Lord say? This this celebration and this Passover is going to be the beginning of a new year for you. It is going to be the beginning of what we call the Levitical or the festival year. So God gives them two calendars. They had the civil calendar by which was dated everything, and that's what you read in Genesis 8, 6, I think it is, the 17th day of the seventh month. That's the civil calendar. Let me say it like this. We have a civil calendar, right? January, February, March, April, May. But we also have a church calendar. You know what I mean by that? It is a calendar that talks about or references the various church events. That may be different. It may not have this. What we do on one month will be different than the secular month. So God said, this is the first month. This is the month that you will celebrate in gratefulness and in anticipation of my delivering power because these seven feasts or festivals are God's way of redeeming his people and are the overarching statement of how God will deal with all humanity in those seven festivals you have God's way of deliverance all the way to the return of the Lord Jesus in those seven festivals each one has to do with this each one very important Now, so when you come to the Levitical or religious calendar, Nisan is the first month, the first month. But it's the seventh month of the civil calendar. So when Genesis 8 says the seventh month, it's anticipating what month? The first month. Are we together on this? On the 17th of the civil becomes the 17th of? The religious calendar. Jesus was crucified on the 14th and buried. I'm not going to get into the morning and the evening, but, you know, it's a little different than what we do. Their day began when? At the sunset. And the day began, ended then. And when did the day begin? Right after sunset, when one day ended, the next day began. So let's say you say six o'clock, whatever it is. So what this means is that in Matthew, when we read that Mary or wherever you might read in the, the Gospels, these people, let's say the men and women, whoever, came to the tomb when? It accentuates very early in the morning. Is it Mark that says it was already still dark? They're not getting up at 6 o'clock Sunday morning and going to the tomb. Very early on the morning. Next day is what? Sunday, our Sunday, the eighth day. Well, what, what happens? When Mary gets there, when these folks get here, Jesus is not just rising then. He's already gone. The angel said he has risen. So Jesus rises at the end on sabbath to live into the reality and the good of the rest of the year whatever you see god creates humanity and says it is very good at the end of the sixth day the sabbath and they are to now be those people who will live in the eternal seventh the completion of the lord that's when you're supposed to live You're supposed to live in the grace of God's presence forever. So what is the deal here? Did I I, get something confused, Todd? Sometimes I do. Okay. What is the deal here? Jesus rose on the 17th and began to manifest himself to the disciples, to the women. The ark rested Jesus rose and rested from all of his work of redemption. And now he ever lives to give us the good of his resurrection life. This is the principle by which God now operates or deals with his people in the world. Amen. Next week, we'll talk, begin to talk about the proofs. And I ask you this. Someone says to you, I don't believe in the resurrection. I think it's a tale. It's it's fake. What are you going to say to them? You can't answer. It's true because it's in my Bible. Come on. It has to be more than that. Amen. So please come back next week. Thank you.